Well, just in case you were falling asleep, that was there to jar you awake for the message this morning. <laughs> well, it was good. Uh, it's good to be back with you all. Last week, as Adam mentioned, uh, we were in Louisville, and uh, Adam finishing up uh, his modular class, and uh, I, along with Rachel and the kids, were able to be there with him, and I was able to tour the school, uh, talk to some professors, even sit on, on some classes, and it was a really good experience, and, but it's good to be back here with you all, and uh, last week, you all had uh, the video uh, as the message, and hopefully that wasn't too odd or anything. We, uh, as you all know, next week is my last week here. And uh, in order to finish up the book of Philippians, we needed last week in order to be able to do it. So I hope that uh, was okay for you. And, uh, but this week, we'll be diving in into chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. And, but before we do, let's open with the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you and we, uh, God, we just open up our hearts before you. Uh, we, we confess our, our sins, our, uh, our shortcoming, God, to, to live for your glory, to delight in you the way we should. Uh, so, God, we pray that, uh, that Christ, God, would be beautiful to us as we study your word, that uh, we would see him as supremely worthy, and that you would just change us from the inside out, God, as we behold uh, the glo- your glory in the face of Christ. So just bless us as we study your word now and open up our hearts to receive what you have, would have for us to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Philippians, what we've been looking at this whole time, this concept of fellowship in the gospel with God's community, we've seen the, the key idea of this book that if I am delighting in Christ, I will delight in the people and the mission of God. If I'm delighting in Christ, I will delight in the people and the mission of God. We first saw this in chapter 1 as Paul gives thanks for the, to the Philippians, or to God for the Philippians rather, because they have been made partakers of grace with him, they've served with him, and Paul goes on to talk about his own imprisonment and suffering for the gospel, but how he rejoices despite all of that, because he has a greater purpose, a greater joy in the Lord himself. And in chapter 2, what we looked at last week, we saw how Paul exhorts them to having of one mind in one spirit. He calls them actually to imitate Christ, to, to have this mind among yourselves, he says, which was also in Christ. Who He humbled himself despite all the glory that he possessed, the glory that he deserved. He humbled himself, laid that aside, and submitted to becoming a servant, a human. Not detracting in any way from his divinity, but adding a human nature to himself. He humbled himself and suffered even to the point of dying on a cross for us. But we know that God has exalted him, and now he is the Lord to whom every tongue will confess and swear allegiance. So he is the one now, with this salvation that we've been given, as he is our Lord, that we now work out our salvation. We live in light of it. And Paul tells this Philippian church, and now us, that we are to live as as children of God's kingdom, without grumbling or disputing and fighting amongst one another, but to live for one purpose, to glorify God and to spread his name among the nations. 
So this week in chapter 3, Paul begins to move into discussing the heart of rejoicing in the Lord. What, what is the core idea? What does it mean to rejoice, this concept that he's been talking about in this letter? Well, first in chapter 3, if, if you're using the, the Bible in front of you in the chair there, that's page 981, the first word he begins with is the word, finally, my brothers. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you know we have two chapters to go. We're just getting into the second to last chapter, so why is he saying finally? And many times preachers, jokingly, have used this as proof text for a long-winded sermon. That here Paul, he says, you know, finally, and he still goes on for two more chapters. But, you know, as D.A. Carson tells the story of, uh, of, a, of a boy and sitting next to his father in the church, and the, and the preacher says, finally, and he keeps going, and the preacher says, Daddy, what does the preacher mean when he says finally? And the father says, nothing at all, son. <laughs> well, no, this is actually not a proof text for this. Paul, what he means here um, is that what the original phrase means is, and so, or moreover, brothers, or he's continuing a line of thought. And he says here, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. You see, in this chapter, Paul, he, he will assure the Philippians that he's not grown impatient with them. They're, they're really struggling with this idea of unity in the midst of their suffering and persecution that they're facing. But he assures them he's not bothered by reminding them of these truths. He's patient and loving with them, much as God is loving with us, even in our constant shortcomings and constant failures. He says that it's safe for them, in fact. He, he wants to protect them from the dangers that undermine their faith. See, he's going to go on to warn them against the perils of legalism. And he then uses his own testimony to remind them that the only source of righteousness and true life is Christ. It's the grace of God. See, the grace of God fills Paul with an all-consuming passion to know Christ intimately. So much so, actually, that anything that, that takes away from that or hinders him from knowing Christ more, he considers it as absolute filth, as garbage. And we'll see how he uses this danger of legalism and the answer as passionate, grace-filled knowledge of Christ, that that's the answer to their solution, their problem of unity, that if they are delighting in Christ, as they should, standing firm in grace, that they will rejoice in the Lord and their love for one another will abound and they will stand united for the cause of Christ. So now that we've seen the general idea, the introduction to this passage, let's look and dive into it to see how these truths apply to us in our lives. You see, if we're truly to rejoice in the Lord, as it's meant here in the book of Philippians, the first thing we must do is to deny self-justification. Look at verses 2 to 6. Actually, let's read again verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We looked at this passage, actually, in the, in the first sermon on uh, Philippians here and kind of in introducing the ideas of this book. But it seems in verse 2, as we look deeper into this, it, it's like Paul goes into a holy conniption, it seems like. He's saying all of a sudden he just bursts out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And it seems that he, he was pretty calm in the previous verse, and now all of a sudden, bang, he just switches like he's triggered. <laughs> but what he's doing here is it's connected the idea of it is safe for you. Paul's wanting to guard them as his, his children, the, the church that he birthed through the Lord. But now he's, he's warning them passionately to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Now, there's not actually dogs that have suddenly invaded the church here in Philippians, but what he's doing is he's warning them against the danger of legalism. You see, this problem that he's warning them about are issues with a group of people that are known as Judaizers. They're, they're Jews who have professed faith in Jesus, but actually wanted to still add keeping the Mosaic law and a lot of the, the, the rites and, and laws that were a part of that as a requirement necessary for obtaining favor with God and inclusion into the covenant promises for the people of God. But Paul, nothing gets Paul more upset than when people try to take away from the grace of God. That's evident in his letters. Even in the book of Galatians, we see him at his hottest when the Judaizers there have undermined the faith of the Christians in Galatia. And so here as well, he is passionately warning them against this problem. There's no more important issue for believers, even us today, than the purity of the gospel. And if that's important to us, the first place we need to look and root out and guard against legalism is in our own hearts. You see, the language Paul uses here is fiery. He takes everything that the Judaizers prided themselves in and turns it on its head. You see, dogs was a term that Jews used for Gentiles because dogs in that day were a very unclean animal. They, they were not the kind of animal that they kept as pets like we do today. Dogs were, would run around the streets. They were scavengers. They would eat dead things. They were kind of like buzzards of our day today. Sorry against you know, your favorite pooch at home. I mean, the Jew would very look on it 
very disfavorably. But Paul, in turn, calls these Judaizers, Jews according to the flesh, as dogs. He calls them evildoers then. The Jews pride themselves on being doers and keepers of the law. So Paul reverts this on his head and calls them evildoers. He calls them next mutilators of the flesh. You see, most of the Jews in this day legalistically prided themselves in circumcision, which was an external sign of their being included into the covenant community in the Old Testament. So Paul equates such ritualism with self-mutilization when it's apart from trusting alone in the grace of God. So what he's basically saying is that everything that these Judaizers would pride themselves in for their works, it's actually counting against them. It's the exact opposite of what they're intending. And he's going to pick up on this idea in his own personal life and testimony. You see, he says, we, on the other hand, are the true circumcision, those who are truly members of the people of God. Why? Because it's not. As the Apostle John talks about in John chapter 1, it's not by birth, it's not by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but by the will of God that people are birthed into God's family. You see, this is a huge issue in the Bible, this idea of, of works and what we are depending on to make us accepted by God. And we must view it with the same urgency. You see, I mean, today it's so hard for so many people, for all of us really, to get a grip on the idea that there's, that there's nothing we can do in our works to gain more favor with God, to gain righteousness, to gain, to gain salvation. But even if we've acknowledged the fact that, yeah, there's, I know there's nothing I can do to, to, to get to heaven and, and things like that, we often depend on other things to, to bolster our, our feelings of self-worth our, and value, to give ourselves value uh, in the eyes of other people, in the eyes of God. So we have to ask ourselves as we're looking at this, what are we relying on that we, need, that we feel like we have to do or to measure up to by some standard or to gain a, a greater degree of, of, of righteousness, of worth, of value? whether that's before God or even other people, because it is linked. If we find our identity and our value in Christ and what he's done for us, then the opinions of others don't bear the same weight as they did before. That we aren't dependent on whether someone approves of us, and if they don't, we're just crushed in our spirit. Because we know that God in Christ has approved of us already. You see, Paul is trying to remind the Philippians in verse 3 that they are part of a new community, a people. He's trying to get them this identity that they need to have. They are those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory and or boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. You see, these descriptions are ways of saying that Christians are those who do not rely on themselves or their own efforts or their own qualifications in their relationship with God. They receive God's work of grace in their lives and find their confidence in Christ and his qualifications. Their worship, the Christian's worship, is brought about by the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and not by a legalistic performance or ritualism. 
Though Paul, in verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You see, for any of us who think that we have a, a reason or like something that we can be proud of in our relationship with God, something that we bring to the table that, you know, God, I'm a pretty worthy servant of yours. I mean, yeah, I know you've saved me by grace, but aren't you glad to have me on your team? If any of us have anything like attitude like that, Paul blows us out of the water. You see, he goes on this list to describe the, the human qualifications that he would have if he were to depend on his own works. He says here, I am circumcised on the eighth day. Now, that means virtually nothing to us today, but in a Jewish mindset, circumcision, again, the sign of being included in God's family, covenant family, on the eighth day, what the law prescribed is when it should be done. That was fulfilled by Paul, obviously by his parents, because he didn't have much choice in it. He says he's of the people of Israel. He, he is one of the ethnic people of God, of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, the tribe of Benjamin was a, an important tribe in, in Israel's history. It, has, it occupied a privileged place and had an important place in Israel's history. He says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This speaks to his genuine Hebrewness, if you will. He was culturally a, a Hebrew and linguistically a Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew when most Jews spoke Greek. He was a purebred, if you want to put it that way. And next he says he was, according to the law, a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees, as most of you will be familiar with, are, were the holiest, most well-respected group among the Israelites at that time. They observed laws and regulations that went even way beyond what the original Torah, the law, required. So the Jews highly looked up to them, and Paul was one of this elite group. And then he says concerning zeal, persecuting the church. No one was more passionate than Paul for the keeping of the law. You see, he went even so far as before he was saved, he would persecute people uh, that believed in Christ, members of the church. I mean, he approved of Stephen's martyrdom and stood by watching approvingly. And according to righteousness under the law, Paul says, he was blameless. And it's not sinlessness he's claiming, but observation of all the law's commandments and guidelines, including those that... Uh, provided for atoning sacrifices. So Paul here, what he's saying is that he was one who followed meticulously, although externally, all of the law's demands. I mean, think of this. As a follower of Judaism, I mean, he had the entire resume that someone could want. Everything. I mean, equate this in our, in our modern day vernacular. I mean, someone who, I don't know, was a part of the, the most spiritual family that had, you know, generations and generations and generations past of, of pastors, and, and he was, you know, no one could say anything against him. He was baptized when he was young, all of this stuff. But Paul makes a dramatic shift. You see, he says, he, he knows that ethnic heritage does not justify or grant one righteousness before God, nor do personal works. Because he, these qualifications he has divides into what his uh, ethnic qualifications would have been as a Jew and then what his own personal achievements would have been. And it's easy for us today many times to take pride in our works, whether that's our zeal and our faith or, or even in our ethnicity. Because, I mean, racial pride is still very much a reality 
in our country and around the world. But what do we take pride in that's hindering us from true humble dependence upon the righteousness of Christ alone? I mean, it could be anything. It could be, it could be how well of a parent you are, how well you're raising your kids, uh, how well, if you're a young person, how well you're staying away from the many temptations that, can, can, that the world offers you. It can be, if you're elder, you know, the, the years of service you have for God, or, or maybe the family you come from, anything. But the heart that rejoices and delights in Christ, that must abandon all attempts at self-justification, and embrace knowing Christ by grace. And this is the second thing that Paul says here, that if we are to truly rejoice in the Lord, not only must we abandon self-righteousness, but we must embrace knowing Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, here he's using accountant-like terminology. Many of you are either, maybe you work for a bank or something, or you've, you, know, you have a checkbook, and you have the little, uh, the little you know, addition and the columns that, that are gains to you and those that are debts. But Paul says now he considers all of those, those self-righteous qualifications that he used to put in that, that column that benefited him, he has entirely switched that and says, now those are losses against me. Those are debts. There's something that takes away from him and hinders him. Why? Not, not because he's denying the importance of righteous living, but what he's saying is that if I am depending on that in order to gain favor with God, then it's counting against me because it's not enough for a holy God. I'm a sinner, he says, and this cannot measure up to the righteousness that God requires. He says later on that he needs another righteousness. See, for those of us, there, there are many times two kinds of, of Christians, those that are, are genuinely struggling with their own uh, sense of unworthiness, and they struggle with feeling, well, how could God accept me? And, and I don't feel like I've, I'm, I'm a, a good enough of a Christian. But then there are those who are just blatantly just entrenched in their own sense of, well, you know, I'm a pretty good Christian, and, and I, I mean, you know, I'm not like this person over here, the classic example of the Pharisee who prays and, and thanks God for all that he's done and, and thanks God that he's not like the, the tax collector, the sinner over here. But for both, the answer comes with denying self-achievement and standing confident in the righteousness that is in heaven, Christ himself, for us. See, if you're struggling with this concept of, you know, how could God really accept me? Take comfort in knowing that your righteousness is not dependent upon you or on your works. Your righteousness stands in heaven at the right hand of the Father, never to be moved from that place. And if Christ is never going to be moved, then neither are you, because you are united to him eternally through the Holy Spirit. But if, if you are blindly confident in yourself, then you need a rude awakening that Paul provides here. You need to see that those things you're co having confidence in, God is looking at those and equating those as sins because you are trusting in them, filthy rags apart from believing in him for your righteousness. That's still rebellion against him. 
Paul, in verse 8, he says, not only have I counted at this time of his conversion, he counted those, those, right, those things that he trusted in for his righteousness, he counted them as loss. But not only for this, he says, indeed, or what is more, I count, present tense, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, he makes a dramatic shift to the, his mindset in the present. See, not only is he saying that I, I have abandoned these things that I trusted in for my righteousness, but what is more now is that I see everything else that, that hinders me from knowing Christ personally in this relationship that God has provided, everything else that distracts me from that as complete trash. You see, there's a growing intensity in Paul's complete abandon to know Christ. As he's grown, as he's matured, this isn't something that just hit him in a day, but this is something that God has worked in his heart to where now he says, I consider everything as loss. Now, something needs to be said here, I think, about what it is to know Christ and to know God personally. Because I think that can be Christian mumbo-jumbo in a lot of words, to, and something that those who didn't grow up in the church, what, is, what does it really mean to know God? You see, knowing Christ is, that, is based on the concept that God has revealed himself in his word so that we may be restored in fellowship to him. See, we were originally meant to have a, a personal fellowship with God. And see, to know Christ is to continually respond to the revelation about him that he requires and the way he requires. See, it's not just knowledge about facts. That's important. But it's a, a knowledge about a person since God is a personal God. He knows us and wants us to know him through his word. And we see this especially intimate nature of this relationship that God wants for us in Paul's description of Christ Jesus as my Lord. See, this is not a phrase that he uses a lot. In fact, I believe it's the only time he uses this phrase in his letters, this personal my Lord. He says our Lord a lot, but he's drawing out this, this per passionate mindset he has to know Christ, the one who is my Lord, he says. I mean, is that our mindset? Do we have, or we do we even desire that personal knowledge of Christ that we can say he is my Lord, my master, the one I love. Paul says he has lost all things, he says, as he continues on, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and now count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, this idea of rubbish here is a, a, a very uh, strong, very, very potent language, actually, in the original Greek. It, it was almost, a, a, it was a phrase that would have taken the Philippians back, that Paul would have used this. It's complete and utter garbage, filth, waste, something to be discarded and detested. And it, it, it's, it's a very strong idea that is meant to shock us today that, wow, I mean, how much is Christ, knowing Christ, really worth to me? See, what are we clinging to, though, that is keeping us from abandoning all else to say, God, Christ is my one passion, my one focus. I want to pursue whatever that means, whatever it may cost me. Because knowing Christ will 
cost you in the long run. It'll cost you sometimes friendships of those that, that will distance themselves from you. It'll cost you your personal pride in yourself. So what are you clinging to, though? Is it, is it a pet sin that you do not want to give up because you think it's still worth more than Christ really is? Is it financial security that you're not willing to trust God, trust your entire self, even your financial future to Christ? Is it a relationship that you're idolizing? A relationship with a spouse, a child that you, that, that you value more than even your relationship to Christ? Any other kind of relationship? It, or is it finding identity in your job, that that's where you find your pride, that's what you boast in? But Paul, as he says, counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, he has a threefold goal for this complete denial and repudiation of anything that hinders him. First, it's gaining Christ. See, this is deeply personal language. It's not the gain of information, but it's the gain of a person, Christ. You see, it ultimately will reach this, its fulfillment for all of us. This, this relationship with Christ will be culminated and consummated when we go to be with Christ and when he returns. You see, the second main purpose he has in verse 9, he says that he wants to be found in him. He wishes to be found in union with Christ at the last day when he stands before God, not, he says, he clarifies this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You see, not a righteousness that he feels like he's earned by being good enough, by, by even pursuing after holiness enough, but it's something, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the one who is righteous, the righteousness that, from God that depends on faith. It's an, a posture of trust. It's a posture that does not just define us when we come to Christ initially, but it's a posture that we remain in as we continually look to Christ as our all in all. And Paul expands this idea with his third reason for counting everything as rubbish. It's that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, this idea is, is Paul's passionate mindset of, of knowing Christ intimately, and how does that take place? It is key that we grasp this idea to know the, um, the idea of union with Christ, of growing in our walks with Christ, being completely tied up in our living according to our union with Christ. It's the idea that Romans chapter 6 talks about. It's a daily, not just one time, it's a daily walk of grace as we come to realize more and more our complete helplessness, our sinfulness, not just to merit God's favor with our good works, but also our helplessness to, to obtain the fullness and true satisfaction in life that we were created to have. We can't achieve that through, through uh, our own pursuits that the world says, that you can gain satisfaction in a relationship. You can gain satisfaction in more money. You can gain satisfaction in more popularity. But we realize day in, day out, if we are knowing Christ, that he has freely given us all things in Christ and we will seek to live 
and the all-encompassing salvation that God's given us. It's a salvation that's not just meant to save us from the penalty of sin, but it's a salvation that that's, brings us into a relationship with God that calls us to die to ourselves, to our own sinful passions, but to live knowing that we have such a greater treasure in a relationship with God, that we are accepted by him, loved by him, and we approach him now as just a father who always has welcomes arms to us. You see, Paul here, he's talking about he desires to know him in the power of his resurrection. You see, believers have spiritually died to their sin and been raised to new life in Christ. See, Romans 6, chapter 3, verse 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's this knowledge that, you know what? If there's something that is tempting me, that, that is trying to hinder me from, from knowing Christ, from pursuing him in my life, that, you know what, that's, that's dead to me. Just as, just as a dead person doesn't respond to someone poking and prodding them, saying, hey, hey, wake up, get up. We no longer, because of our union with Christ, have to give in to those temptations, have to, to respond to those, and we're no longer slaves to that. We've died to it. But just as we've died, so with Christ, because of our union with his resurrection, we have been raised to a new relationship with God to where we are alive to him, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've put that behind us, that is dead to us, and our new purpose and life and fulfillment comes from knowing Christ. There's great power in this union that Paul says here, the power of his resurrection. And, and this reminds us of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul prays that the believers there may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, God is at work powerfully within us, just as we saw in ch uh, chapter 2, verse 13, that it is God who works in us both to will and work for his good pleasure. As we seek to live in this union with Christ, we trust that God is powerfully working within us, stirring our affections for Christ as we seek to know him in his word and through prayer. And Paul doesn't just stop there. He says that he wants to know and share in his sufferings, Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, if we are to know Christ truly and fully and live in our union with him, it requires that we must first live in union with his death, his sufferings, that we're not going to truly know the, the fullness of life that he gives to us unless we're going to die to the old things that held dominion over us. And Paul here says that, again, these things that he wants to share in his sufferings, that he, it's a denial that these things I've, I've lost, I, I don't see the value in them anymore because Christ is supremely greater. And then he says, the ultimate purpose here, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that sounds strange to us, 
Because, I mean, it seems like, well, Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying that you're not sure of your, of, of that uh, you'll participate in the resurrection from the dead in the last day? No, Paul's not reverting back to works. That's clear. But what he's saying is that he is expressing the importance, the equal importance, that believers must endure in faith till the end. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. Believers are sure in their confidence that they will be raised up at the last day because of their union with Christ. But on the opposite same side, on the opposite side of the same coin, that believe, it's true that believers must endure in faith till the end. You see, the Christian life is a journey of faith. Many of you have read or are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. That Christian was on a journey of faith to the to, to city of Zion. And Christians as us, we must walk this journey of faith till we reach the gates of Christ's kingdom. Paul here longs for the freedom from sin that will result when Christ comes and resurrects his, his old flesh, his dead body. You see, this autobiographical section that Paul gives us is meant to show us that the Christian walk from beginning to end is based on God's grace. Even the things that we do are entirely based on what Christ has done for us, that we're seeking to live in light of what has been done for us in Christ. And it's not one that's filled with pride. We see Paul constantly exhorting them against pride and towards humility in their walk with one another. So what about us? What are we depending on to make God like us more or to, or to, uh, or, and to make God or, or even others approve of us more to gain a sense of self-worth and identity? Are we continually forsaking all attempts to, or, to give ourselves righteousness before God? And have we seen Christ as the true one treasure that is supremely worth knowing because of what he's done for us? You see, a heart that truly seeks to know Christ through his grace, as we see in verse 12 here, also realizes its continual shortcomings. Again, it's one of continual humility. Paul says here in verse 12, look at this with me, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Wow. He's saying here that, that, he realizes that, man, I am so imperfect. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul here, the one who we see in the, 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 big, the old paintings, you know, one with the halo around his head, you know, Paul studying the scriptures. We think, wow, you know, super saint. But he says, I, I am far from considering myself to be perfect. He says, but rather than getting stuck there and be like, oh, I've, I've fallen so short, woe is me, you know, uh, who am I, you know, and, and getting stuck in that mindset that we so often do, he says, no, I am pressing on. This same word pressing is the same word he used to describe his zeal in verse 6, his zeal for persecuting the church. So rather than his zeal being put towards trying to obtain a righteousness of his own, now his zeal is to press to know Christ. You see, he's setting even his failures behind him to, to know Christ more, to, to press, what is it to press towards? The high call of the upward, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. 
So let's read in verse 13 here. Brothers, again he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, he's saying here that the one thing that he desires, the one thing that he presses towards, he strains towards, is to know Christ. This is athletic language. He's as an athlete who that you know eats that eats the right kinds of food who always works out they're constantly straining towards this goal that they have this is paul's mindset that he is pressing towards the day that he will see christ and know him perfectly and he wants to know him more and more and more as he heads towards that day and then he makes an interesting statement here he says in verse 15 let those of us who are mature think in this way and if any And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. See, Paul here, the grammar seems to suggest here in the original there, is that he's saying and indicating that some people are not of this mindset. They have gotten their focus off of pursuing Christ. And that's clear from this letter. They have been caught up in bickering and strife and and, and, uh, fighting with one another. And that's what happens when they lose this mindset of knowing Christ that Paul is encouraging them towards. This is why he's talking about this. But Paul recognizes that the only one, he says, that can convict the heart and show them where the, the true goal that they need to be pursuing after, the only one that can do that is Christ, is God himself. He says, God will reveal that also to you. And he has a confidence that God is at work in this people that the Holy Spirit will work among them to show them that, man, I haven't been living up to this. I've been caught up in, in fighting with my brothers and sisters and, and getting focused on things that really don't matter in the, sp- in the scope of eternity. So what, what is it today? Is the Holy Spirit convicting our own hearts, convicting us as a congregation? And that, is there things going on in our midst or in our own individual hearts and our relationships that we've gotten off focus. We're starting to view others as, as things that, as, as means to an end, that we view people rather than as those that Christ loves and we love and we seek to invest in, that we're viewing them as just a, a means to get what we want or what we think should be done. You see Paul here, and the third thing that they need to do in order to truly have the heart of knowing Christ, he calls them to follow the right examples. Paul wraps up his exhortation here in chapter 3 by commanding the Philippians to imitate his own example, his own mindset, and to diligently learn from others who are also walking as he does. And this is not him being conceited or anything like that. It's him realizing that, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He wants them to follow Christ, and he, as he's following Christ, he says, hey, come on, follow me, follow where I'm going. And that's what Paul encourages the Philippians and what the Holy Spirit is trying to encourage us today. Who among us here in the midst are those who are truly seeking after what really matters, who are seeking after Christ? God's word would tell us to say, hey, focus on those people, not the ones who are, are, would, would get you distracted on things that don't matter, on selfish purposes, but to follow after them 
and to seek the, the spread of the gospel and focus on the things that really are important. He says, brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul tells them not to be led astray with the example of others who have literally just left the faith entirely. Their focus is so caught up in themselves that they have no room for Christ at all. See, he's telling them with tears and weeping that these people, their, their end is destruction. Don't follow after them. Follow after those who are pursuing Christ and have the mindset that they do and their mindset being to glorify Christ and to know him. And he, again, calls them back, calls the Philippians back, and now us back to identify with our true identity in Christ. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we are to be all about, recognizing that this earth is not our home. We are citizens of God's kingdom for his purpose, living for him, seeking to make his gospel spread in our community, in our relationships, and in the world. This is our identity. And we look forward to that day longingly when he comes again to transform ourselves, to transform our lowly bodies, to be like his glorious body. So, as he says in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, in concluding this thought, he affectionately urges them to stand strong in this mindset. So brothers and sisters, with, with me today, I, I, I ask myself and all of you, what is our mindset? What is our focus? What is the passion of our lives? What is it that, that's hindering us from having a complete and reckless abandon to know Christ and his grace, not on the basis of, a, of a works on our part, but realizing that, man, I have everything I need and it's been provided in Christ and I want to live in light of that and to know Christ more. What has stolen our affections away from Christ? You see, again, say it with me. If I am delighting in Christ, say it with, here. If I am delighting in Christ, I will delight in the people and mission of God. See, today we focus on the first clause of that statement there. It, the delighting in Christ. What's our passion? What is the joy and treasure of our lives? Are we resting in the finished work that Christ has accomplished in his death on the cross? Maybe, maybe you've, you've come to Christ, but you're still struggling with it, or maybe you have never trusted in Christ as your own Savior, that you've abandoned reliance upon yourself, and you've cast yourself wholly upon Christ and what he has done for you. Today is the day to make that decision. You see, only if our hearts 
are set on Christ, will we live in humble, loving unity with our brothers and our sisters? You see, Christ, beloved, offers all of the joys and true delights that our hearts were originally meant to, to have. So let us run to him because he stands in open arms patiently wooing us back to himself. Let's close in prayer. Mm-hmm.